This is my instant reaction for Smile. Imagine a circle within a circle. On the outer edge of that circle is the fringe. It's outsider art. It is what pompous people would call the avant-garde. It's the cutting edge, right? The cutting edge of horror was about 10 to 12 years ago, the modern horror movement, uh, with independent uh, horror films, of many of which would go on to get picked up by A24, Neon, etc., etc. The one that comes to mind in regards to this movie is It Follows. We have now entered, as we do in a cyclical fashion with all things arts and entertainment, the point of which the fringes gets constricted and pulled into the, the center, the circle within the circle. So the outer edge of the outer circle begins moving inwards towards the inner part of the inner circle. That's the mainstream, right? This is, uh, if you've ever taken a media class, you've probably seen this diagram. We're in that point now when it comes to, to horror films. Case in point, Paramount Pictures, one of the last of the great uh, studio system studios, one of the last of the old guard of Hollywood. Obviously, it's not currently being run like the old guard of Hollywood. It's just been vertically integrated into the behemoth of Viacom. And then I think another behemoth on top of that. But, um, but the point being, Paramount is still a major studio for whatever that's worth in 2022. And they have made a movie that is replicating beat for beat, uh, in effect, aesthetically beat for beat, an A24 film. Imagine somebody trying to do Ari Aster meets It Follows. And that is what Smile really is. That is to its detriment, I feel, for a variety of reasons. One, because if you've seen an A24 film, they're better than this, by and large, by and large. But they're better than this. We've had two this year, X, which I didn't really care for, and Pearl, which is probably going to make my best of at the end of the year. Um, and then I think back of you know so many other great films over the last decade, uh, St. Maud from last year. And again, I go back a, a decade or so ago to, um, uh, what's its face? Uh, it Follows. So I don't remember if It Follows was A24 or not. I feel like it was, but maybe it wasn't. Um, This one's tough, right? If we've had Hereditary, we've had Midsommar, we've had uh, some of Robert Eggers' films, which have horrific elements to them. Um, it's just, we've seen this done at such a highly artistic level that is still commercially viable, at least in regards and relationship to its budget. So what you get with Smile, and I'll get into spoilers here, and I'll have a clear demarcation line, but when you, what you get with Smile is you're getting a film that takes the aesthetic. This is what the mainstream always does, right? It takes the aesthetic and the bells and whistles, so to speak, of the form of whatever is fringe, cutting edge, outsider, you have it, you name it. And then it, it emulates that, but it, it does it in its most obvious way. So it's not doing anything necessarily revolutionary because, of course, it is a copy. 
Well, it's also missing the point, which is a lot of those movies have a degree of ambiguity about them in relationship to what their theme is. Even if they go so far as to explain the monster or the entity or the spirit or the whatever, even if it's, oh, well, it's a cult, right? Thematically, they're not just going, and now here's what the movie's about. This movie's actually about the patriarchy, right? You know, this movie's actually about, you know, it's not uh, A24, but something like Get Out. It's, it, it doesn't, doesn't, the movie doesn't stop and go, this movie's about white privilege and white supremacy and systemic racism. Doesn't do that. Us doesn't do that. Nope. Doesn't do that, right? Nope. Doesn't hold your hand and go, this movie, even though they, they use the term spectacle repeatedly, it, it never goes, oh, well, you know, here's what the shoe means. <laughs> and this movie isn't as egregious as many studio films are. It's not as egregious as some of those Conjuring movies, which, which I enjoy some of them on a certain level. But they get a bit tedious at times because they, they break it down and go, this is the evil spirit, and this is where it comes from, and it attaches itself to this, and that's why we have to go to the spooky hospital. And once we're inside the spooky hospital, this is the step-by-step -step procedure I have to go through to cast the spirit out. You know, um, This is somewhere in between that. This is somewhere in between a Warner Brothers conjuring film or something of that ilk and um, an A24 picture or a Jordan Peele movie, probably like more like an A24 with moments that are filled with unintentional comedy, like an M night Shyamalan film. One of what could have been the most horrific scenes in the film had the entire theater chuckling to themselves and me outright laughing and the guys next to me outright laughing. And I wasn't supposed to be laughing. And there was a couple of scenes where I was laughing, where I don't think I was supposed to be laughing. And it also felt like there was something set up with a particular character that got really no payoff. And maybe you could tie it together and say, okay, well, that was like a theme. Um, one of those, you know, less obvious thematic elements that I'm begging for. And, you know, now you're complaining because it wasn't more directly tied in the plot. So... Uh, I, I, that's very specific. If you haven't seen the movie, then it's like, what the hell is this guy talking about? Once you see it, you'll know what I mean. And we'll explore it more in, um, in the spoiler section. This one's kind of a tough one to, to, to come down in a grade for because, again, it's a Paramount film, so there's money behind it. And I don't know what the budget is, but my guess is it's more than a lot of the independent horror that we've seen. So there's, there's money here. The money is on the screen. It looks pretty good. Um, this movie also has the dubious place of, I just saw the 40th anniversary remastered 4K version of Poltergeist, which on the big screen, first time I've seen it on a big screen, I've seen it a million times, but first time on the big screen is maybe a perfect film. I could argue that it's a perfect, perfect movie. I could argue that it is to ha haunted house movies as to what Jaws is for uh, man versus nature films, right? So it's just a perfect film. And it's 
touching and emotional and creepy and scary and and again this they're not like this isn't a haunted house film smile is not a pronouns pal smile is not a haunted house film but it's a scary quote-unquote film i would actually put it more in the category of a thriller the guy next to me said at the end and i agree with it i think it's more of a thriller it's completely and entirely dependent upon jump scares 90 percent of which you've seen in the trailer if you've seen any trailers for it that's the stuff that's in there um Part of the A24 aesthetic that I'm talking about is you're going to get that constant like Ari Aster, like discordant, not that he invented it, but that discordant, dissident, weird, it sounds like cigarettes kind of singing and sound effects. And it's like that, you know, that, that bloop, bloop, that dripping sound effect that's like just constantly going in the back and these like high notes and it's just, you know, it's supposed to ratchet up the tension, make you uncomfortable, et cetera, et cetera. It, sometimes it works when I'm aware of all of that, because you're just cramming the movie full of like spooky images, jump scares, fake outs, sc this scary music. Then you're telegraphing that we really want you to be scared. We really want you to be scared. You should be scared now. This is a scary movie. And what's happening isn't actually scary. You're sending out all of the signals that this is a scary movie, but plot-wise what's happening isn't scary because it's a movie that I have seen and you have likely seen 10,000 times. A person, and, and, and on that front, a movie we've seen 10,000 times executed well with a fresh spin feels brand new. So I can't, th that in and of itself is not necessarily like some great sin. Um, but it's the, it's like Invisible Man, right? It's um, woman is in a situation where everybody thinks that she's losing it or person. It does, it's usually, usually a woman, but it doesn't have to be. That goes back to like Rosemary's Baby, but it doesn't have to be, right? Hero protagonist is in a position where they encounter something strange they try to warn people. They don't really believe it themselves at first, but they think that maybe they're going insane or losing their mind or their eyes deceive them. But eventually they, they have some sort of experience that's, that's incontrovertible to them. And so they try to persuade their loved ones and the people around them that this highly unlikely, paranormal, supernatural, demonic, alien, future, or whatever thing is happening, nobody believes them. Nobody responds to them in any kind of empathy. I will come back to that in a second. And, um, you know, then are they crazy? Are they not crazy? Well, this movie doesn't even thankfully, mercifully try to play that because of course they're not right. Um, so, you know, and then it becomes an investigation. I've got to get to the bottom of this thing, like the ring or the grudge or something like that. That's probably a better way to put it. It's it follows meets the ring. I've got X amount of time. I got to figure out how I got cursed. I got to figure out how to beat this curse or I'm going to die. That's what the movie is. And we, we investigate, takes us to spooky places where spooky character actors, some of whom you'll recognize, but spooky char character actors, you know, say spooky things, then loud noises happen. And then there's jump scares and smash cuts and oh my god and then it just ends in some sort of confrontation with the creature in the end blah, 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 blah. and your mind can fill in the blanks from there if you've seen these movies 
some of the things that happen in 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 the the midst of that in this particular film again are they're not bad so it's hard for me to be like and that's why this movie sucks because i think large portions of it are cliche and tedious um there was somebody somewhere in the theater i don't know if it was in my aisle or the the aisle behind me this i think it was a guy but i'm not sure this person was snoring through half to the last third of the picture and i can't necessarily blame them because the first quarter of the movie i was like this is so tedious i've seen this a million times and if you would have pulled me um at the beginning and said um hey you know what do you think right like hey what do you think like what's the score of this film then i would have told you the score of the film is like maybe a two out of five, maybe a one out of five at some point. So I'm like, this, this sucks. There, there was a 25 minutes of the, the first 25 minutes of this movie. I thought this is making my worst of the year. This is tedious and boring and bad and, and cliche and trying so hard. And we know exactly what movie this is. And then as the movie got going, a lot of it fell on the shoulders of, uh, uh, I don't know if it's Susie, Sosie, Saucy, uh, but it's Kira Sedgwick and Kevin Bacon's daughter, which I just found out. And part of my issue with her performance in the first 20 minutes, and maybe it's the script, maybe it's the direction, I can't put it all on her shoulders, is I have this problem. I've said it once a million times. If you are... If I'm supposed to be watching you as a character unravel throughout the course of a film and you are not put together, you're already unhinged by the time the movie starts. You're already frayed and barely holding it together. There's really not a lot of places for you to go. Now, the counter argument to what I'm saying is it provides, it lends itself believability. A rational person who appears to have it all together, who just seemingly loses their mind overnight, um, maybe they'd be more likely to be believed. So the argument could be made, if we show this character and their, their context, their backstory, the parts that we haven't seen that have, have, have led them to the point that we meet them, they seem to be frayed, overworked, stressed, tired, et cetera, et cetera. That then gives everybody else in the plot a credible reason for thinking that this is a product of trauma or something in their imagination or that the spooky supernatural things that are happening are clearly like, we, we, we haven't been saying anything, but we've been watching you disassemble and, and uh, decompensate slowly over time. My problem with it is, if the ba- if your if your character's baseline, mental health baseline, is that they're already disturbed, that either needs to factor into it, which is nobody believes this person because they're disturbed, or <laughs> um, nobody believes this person because they're normally a very rational, put together person. And then an inciting incident happens and they're starting to lose it. Movies like this want to play it both ways. 
this is like a cover your ass kind of screenwriting technique where it's like, well, they have it all together and they're disturbed. And it's like, we're, we're just, it feels like story-wise, we're just like covering the bases in a necessary fashion. When the movie transition to transitions into her being kind of appearing to be full throttle, unhinged, she, Bacon, is very good. And she saves the movie. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. But again, because the direction's not bad. I'm just, the, the script is not very good. In end, it is not very scary, right? I'm going to compare this to, like, say, Ari Aster, who you may love, you may hate, whatever. Ari Aster has a nastiness to him, a cruelty in his stories. And you do not know when he's going to in- inject that cruelty. He, and or how, because it may be something that is uh, fantastical. It may be something that is very, very grounded and almost so real your skin crawls. Like, oh, my God. It may be like a very tense, uncomfortable, emotional exchange between two characters. But he has a way of, between the, the real and the unreal, in unexpected ways, getting at you. Right, and then you know something visceral is going to happen. You don't know when it's coming, but something visceral is going to happen. And that uncomfortableness, plus that shotgun blast of visceral, be it gore or horror or whatever, you know, just ugh, right? Like, like you're so uncomfortable already he he needles you and needles you and needles you and needles you and then he just punches you in the gut to the point that the shocking thing almost feels like a relief but it just adds this extra wave of like blah feeling all over you right you feel defiled you feel slimed by his movies because they feel malevolent no pun intended this movie is like it's i think trying to do that but like constant in the sound effects in the background and constant score and toy pianos clanking around and just like everything you've seen in every horror movie since the dream warriors and it's all in here and spooky dirty houses and all this sort of shit and you know is it in my mind or is it real is it a dream or is it real right is freddy real or not who knows like but we know we know that this, the, the, the heroine is not crazy. And then when the scary thing is supposed to happen, the grisly, scary, visceral thing, we're not on needles. We're not on pins and needles. The movie hasn't gotten to us. And then it's just CGI for the most part. There's a couple of real uh, effects, but it's just CGI. And so that stuff is laughable. It's It's scares on the level of the it movies that's a great way to put it like if you found that scary you'll probably find this scary when the spooky shit does happen there's just something there are ideas in here that are inherently interesting there are moments and scenes and stretches of the movie that are executed exceptionally well the performance by Bacon, especially in like the middle portion of the film, is really great. I feel like she kind of loses it. Like her beginning's kind of shaky, and the end I think is kind of shaky. But there's this middle portion where 
she's rescuing the movie um, because she's really good at what she's doing. Um, you know, there's something known as like the burden of knowledge. You know, you have the burden of knowledge. Somebody went, somebody wise once said that, that, you know, and I have a, a, a background that is familiar with the context of this film, the, the opening context of this film. So I, I worked in psychiatric emergency services for years and it also just completely took me out of it because nothing in this is handled correctly or handled in the way that it would be. And then there's another scene that's written between two characters and what, and they're both therapists. And the one therapist is like addressing something with the other character and says, well, da, 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 and their behavior and their whole protocol as a private therapist feels exceptionally real. So I feel like whoever the screenwriter or writers were of this had, had or has experience as or going to a therapist, but has no idea how a psychiatric emergency room works or a psych triage center works and what would be in rooms and what wouldn't be in rooms and who would be in rooms and all that sort of stuff. Um, psychiatric facilities, even within hospital systems, existing hospital systems, not like a, a, an actual like asylum, are somewhere between like a hospital and Sarah Connor and Terminator 2. And I, I know that sounds like extreme, but it's really true. Everything's very, even though that was like a kind of a prison, mental health prison facility, they're somewhere in between. They have the security level, and there's usually levels of security based on the, how, uh, 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 how acute, acutely psychotic or dangerous or harmful the patient is to themselves or others, the client. So there's like so much stuff that happens with the first 25 minutes, I'm just thinking, it wouldn't work this way. This doesn't work this way. This is just like my mind was literally there's a, there's a point where they walk into a room and I'm scanning the room and I'm going, none of this would be in here. This room would not be this large. Those objects wouldn't be there. I mean, these are facilities that if it's inpatient care, you can't have a radio without it being bolted down. They're specialized everything that is just for, for hospital and psychiatric facilities because everything is potentially a weapon in the hand of somebody who is actively psychotic so that bothered me that took me out of it and the, the way that they just like she communicated as a as a therapist or a clinician in this setting or psychiatrist or whatever she is completely inaccurate uh, like at one point this this is not a spoiler there's a just like a tangential character we're just like it's an establishing character we're establishing what she does for a living and um you know she's a psych doc and you know, patient comes in, he's actively kind of psychotic and, and is in a manic state, disassociative state. And, um, you know, he's like, oh, blah, 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 whatever. And so she admits him for observation. Now, here's the, here, this is a psych ER. So I don't get too much of the weeds of this, but either he ha is there voluntarily, which means he brought himself there, or he was involuntarily brought there. If he's involuntarily brought, brought there, he's brought there on a legal order in which most states he is to be held for no more than 72 hours. But during that 72 hours, he is supposed to go under 24-7 observation. She does her assessment on him, 
what she says to him is something that no clinician would say. Some of the things that she says to him. She then has him like, okay, well, I'm going to need him moved. You're just going to leave an actively psychotic, manic person in a giant room by themselves? That makes no sense. I'm going to need him moved to observation. He's already there for observation. So that doesn't make any sense. Either voluntarily he's submitting himself to observation, or he's been brought there by friends, family, or legal order. And typically, unless somebody is in the United States, unless somebody is like completely actively psychotic, your friends and family can't walk you into a psych hospital because they can't sign you in. You have to sign yourself in. And you can sign yourself out. Again, AMA. Again, unless you're posing an immediate threat against yourself or others, which this guy was not. It, it, in America, I, mean, I don't want to get too far in the mental health system, but it doesn't matter how delusional you are. You can walk the streets delusionally. Look and go near wherever your nearest downtown is in the United States. That's like, well, how are these people out here? Because that's, as long as they're not a, a risk to the, themselves or others, there's nothing you can do. So that made no sense. Also, when she turns his chart in, she gives no orders whatsoever. Somebody who is in that state wouldn't just be under observation. There would be immediate medical intervention. So you would, she would report to the desk, speak to the nurse. She would have written the orders and told the nurse to administer whatever. They bring up Risperidol in here. Maybe that would be it. They might even give him a cocktail, right? So, you know, they might give him basically Benadryl, some benzos, a uh, couple other things to just calm him down, knock him out, and hopefully, like, break the mania, essentially. And they would immediately start him on drugs. There's, there's None of that happens. None of that happens. And it's such an easy throwaway, like, it's like an episode of ER, right? The doctor walks up, writes the order, gives the nurse, and then, you know, we see her in action. You're like, well, that doesn't really matter. But it does matter because that's such a big part of what this movie's about. The movie's about mental health and being believed about your mental health and facing your issues and the way that mental health is cyclical and generational and trauma and how mental health is informed by trauma and all these sorts of things. You're making a movie about a character in a setting, at a place. You have to get those details right. You just do. And, and then just, be, just having a character show up and go, this movie's about trauma. is very, like, again, disheartening. So um, I, there were three, there was loaded theater, okay? But there were three gentlemen next to me, and uh, I asked them what their scores were. I think the first guy said he'd give it like a three- the second guy said he doesn't talk to podcasters. He gave it a four out of five stars and said it was better than nope. Um, he was wrong. And the guy next to him was like, oh, this sucked, man. It stunk. I give it like two stars. <laughs> so, and, but even the guy that was like, oh, like three stars. One of the things I heard, overheard him say is he was like, um, you knew everything that was going to happen. Everything about it was completely predictable. And that's my biggest gripe about this movie is like, if you've seen one of these movies, there's nothing new here. It is a procedural. She's going to go Nancy drew and become a detective and maybe even work with a detective. 
it it is it is the equivalent of those the studio horror movies like the remake of the Japanese stuff again like The Ring that we got twenty years ago. So imagine stuff that's from twenty years ago and stuff that's from ten years ago on the independent scene. Twenty years ago mainstream, uh, ten years ago independent scene. Mash that up. This is the movie you get, and at best I would say it's fine. Okay. There are a few sequences in the middle or in the towards the end that I thought were dis, there were some disturbing imagery. And I was like, okay, whoever conceived of that, if the whole movie had been more akin to that or more sophisticated in building towards one particular moment, then this would be a great movie. And instead, it's an okay film that if you have Paramount Plus, I'd, I'd just wait. I mean, I hate to say that. So I give it out of five for my instant reactions. Um, I literally just walk out of the theater, come in, record a podcast. So this is tough. I'm somewhere between like, see, letterbox, you can't do quarter scores. Three and a half seems too generous. Three seems too low. I'm going to have to go with a three. It's a three out of five. It's three out of five. I think as a diversion on your television during spooky season, perfectly fine. As far as a rush out to the theater and see it, there's not enough scares here. There's literally, like, there were jump scare after jump scare after jump scare, and my audience really didn't move. And I, I, I didn't move at all. I mean, I didn't move, a, I didn't flinch at all. And either anybody next to me, anybody around me, I was looking around. There was, I mean, it was a lot of just sort of boredom. I mean, people, you just like, people just sort of like, they came for a scary movie. They came to be scared. The movie started playing and you could hear people in the crowd going, oh man, here we go. You know, oh boy, oh no. You know, But it was just none of that. It was absolutely none of that. It was just, you just sat there and just looked at the screen and laughed at some scenes I don't think we're supposed to be laughing at, which I'll get to next in spoilers. I'm gonna keep these spoilers very brief because I've already gone over a half hour. I try to keep these things short, but such is, such is life at binge movies. Um, there's, she's the, the main character is an emergency services psychiatrist. Uh, she has a client come in who claims that he's going to die. Everybody's going to die. Everything's meaningless. She gets him admitted. I've already bitched about that. She gets a college student who comes in. This is what you've seen in the trailer. This is the one who cuts a smile into her face. And she actually doesn't. She cuts around her mouth and then down around her throat, but doesn't do like the complete. It honestly would have been more effective had she cut the, just the smile all the way across her throat. And like it, the gash was a smile across her throat. Um, and again, there's like elements of this that's like the setup is interesting, but the execution is done. Like, why didn't you do it this way? Like that would have been more creepy, more scary. Like she's got a smile on her face and she cuts a smile and, or she cuts the smile into her face. Joker style. This is like n neither, you know? And then she's just like dead in a pool of blood and it's just... whatever. So, uh, by the time we meet this, the the doctor who I couldn't even tell you her name, Rose, I think, um, who, who, Kevin Bacon's daughter, uh, Miss Bacon, uh, playing Rose, 
Um, she's just like, oh, she's already like, you know, do you remember what um, Elizabeth Moss was like, like at the table in the restaurant seeing the Invisible Man? Like if she was at like a nine and by that point in the movie, it's completely reasonable it should be at a nine. No, better yet. You know what she was like when she, like, she escaped the abusive household that she was from, right? And she moved in with her buddy who was like a cop or whatever. And she was too afraid to go to the mailbox. And, and, and you knew exactly why. Because she had been this like abused, kept woman for all these years. And, and cut off from her family. And nobody knew the hell that she had gone through. And she was just like a shaking, like a leaf mess. That is this doctor who is an active psychiatrist dealing with actively psychotic patients from frame one of this movie. She is Elizabeth Moss, an invisible man who just escaped the abuse of her. When you meet her, when you meet her at her desk, she's already like this like wafish, trembling leaf of a person. And it's like, this person should not be practicing medicine, let alone mental health medicine. And I, they're going to give her the backstory where she came from a traumatic household and her mom was a drug addict and her mom overdosed and she found her body and it was like suicide by OD. Um, and she discovered the body when she was a kid and that's why she went into mental health so she could help people because she couldn't save her mom and feels all this guilt. And I get that, but um, to do that work of a psychiatrist, you have to be high functioning. You can be crazy. Right. Like what's the one like my neighbor, or the psychiatrist or whatever, like you can be crazy and be a psychologist, psychiatrist, and practice medicine and mental health. But you have to be what's known as high functioning, meaning your baseline. You have to be able to at least appear normal. Right. That's what makes true psychotics and, and true sociopaths so scary is that their baseline is they pass more often than not as a normal member of society. One of my other big gripes about this movie is uh, essentially the way it works is like it follows only instead of fucking it's suiciding. And so, you know, somebody kills themselves. The, whoever witnesses the suicide with this entity involved, then within a week kills themselves with a big old smile on their face. And then they do it in front of somebody else. And that, that, that the, the suicide curse passes on the smile curse passes on from witness to witness and whatever. And so because this, this woman's patient killed herself in front of her, Rose's patient kills herself in front of her, Rose is now where the curse, and she has to get people to believe her and get to the bottom of it. Her fiancé is played by the actor who plays A-Train on The Boys. Pretty sure that's true. Um, he looked familiar, and the guy next to me said, that's A-Train for The Boys. I've, I've just completely, I cannot retain actors anymore. Something's wrong with my brain. But... It sounded like him. It looked like him. But I was like, I'm, I, I'm not sure. Um, I think that's right, though, right? Yes, it is. Okay. Jesse T. Escher. There we go. Um, so Jesse T. Escher is like her fiance, and he's like very wealthy, well-to-do, which also bothers me because there's this scene where they're like, maybe if you went into real medicine, you could make real money instead of being poor because you're trying to help people with her. This is a scene between her and her asshole sister and her asshole brother-in-law who are like comedically comically assholes like they're just straight out of like a, a a comedy and yet they live in this palatial mid-century modern mansion right this huge ranch out in the middle of nowhere with like koi ponds and waterfalls and 
It's it's a modern build with mid-century modern fashion inside of it. And again, it's like, oh, well, she's 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 worked herself to the bone and she's dedicated herself to mental health to the point that she's like, <laughs> um, you know, poor because of it. Because she works at this poor community hospital, which they pay late lip service to. And she just really wants to help her patients because they're all indigent, which never comes up again. And it's like, why would you be upset your sister for when she's engaged to a guy who we don't know what he does? Uh, we barely know his name. Um, the Jesse T. Usher character who is apparently super rich. And again, that ends up being like a plot point where he's like, I can't, when she starts compensating, he's like, I can't attach myself to somebody who's, you know, unstable because that's going to affect my future. And then she later brings it up and she's like, all you care about is your future. I came to you and confided you about what I was struggling with and like blah, blah, blah. And he's like, how dare you say that to me? And it's like, well, you said it. She's literally just repeating back to you what you said, which on the one hand is like kind of believable because sometimes in fights you're like, how dare you say the thing that I just said, right? But also I'm like, I think it might just be bad writing. Oh, man. There's just so much of that where it's like, oh, this scene could this scene could have been good. This is badly written. This is badly executed. Why is this character doing this? Give you a case of point. Turns out that the cop who comes to investigate the suicide of the patient, one of the cops, uh, and they are buffoonish, cartoonish, like, like just completely out of the like a, a comedy again, like a dark comedy. Um, is an ex-boyfriend, uh, ex-lover, ex-whatever, and so he's like trying to get back with her, but she's engaged to Jesse T. Usher, and that cop, his name is Joel. And so when nobody believes her, because that's how all these movies can go, everybody's like, oh, well, you haven't been sleeping lately, honey. And it's the stress that's getting to you. And it's like, it's straight up Nightmare on Elm Street stuff. No, oh, I see it. Nobody else sees it. The boogeyman's coming to get me. You know, you've seen it a thousand times. Um, all of this just makes, although so many of these movies just make me want a new Nightmare on Elm Street with Robert England. It, there's so much CGI now. Like he doesn't have to be on fucking wires and shit anymore. Just put him in the fucking makeup. He, he pay him his money. They, you know, whatever it takes, give him his 20 fucking million and make a nightmare down the street before he's dead. Please Hollywood. Okay. Warner brothers. Um, so, uh, anyway, um, so she goes to the cop guy and she, cause she finds out that, She's now seeing what the girl saw, and the girl was seeing stuff because she saw her professor kill himself. So in this ridiculous thing, she goes to, uh, <laughs> pretends to be a reporter, which they do in all of these fucking movies. She pretends to be a reporter. Who should open the door but Judy Reyes? And if you're like, who's Judy Reyes? Uh, she played the nurse in uh, Carla. She played Carla Espinosa, I think. Carla. Nurse Carla in Scrubs. And she's been in a bunch of other stuff. And she's the widow, and she's like, oh, my husband was, was crazy, and this is whatever. And then, of course, you know, that gets exposed. Why the fuck are you here? You're not a reporter. Like, you've seen that scene. And, oh, my God, oh, all this drama. And the she goes to the reporter, and she's, like, putting the pieces together. She's like, "Did was this guy involved? Here's, I want you to look up this guy. She does not explain, first of all, the relationship between the professor and the college girl who died in front of her that he's investigating, by the way, 
he's the lead detective on. She does never draws the, the connection. Now, she wants him to believe her about this entity, but she doesn't give him all the facts for no reason. There's no reason why she shouldn't. There's also no reason why he shouldn't put together. Because at the beginning of the movie, they, Joel and his partner, tell her that she had recently witnessed a suicide. She had seen her professor beat, him, beat himself, bludgeon himself to death with a hammer. So later in the movie, when she goes back to Joel, who conveyed this information, and gives her the name of the professor, gives him the name of the professor to look up, he, it never occurs to him that that's the guy that he told her about. And you're just like, what? What the fuck? And so he's like, oh, yeah, well, this guy like beat himself with it. Like, oh, with a hammer. Oh, God, this is awful. And, uh, you know, and it's like, oh, well, he's he saw this lady kill herself. And he, oh, God, here are the autopsy photos. First of all, a murder detective has seen so much shit that autopsy photos of somebody who got hit in the face with a hammer are nothing. They're, 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 they're going to real life crime scenes where people are fucking goo. Right, because they get hit by trains, or they blew their head off with shotguns, etc. Okay, so again, you're getting these details wrong, which because you're getting the details wrong, you're getting the character beats wrong, and you end up with this fucking sloppy script where what spooky moments do happen are completely ruined by the contrivances of the plot, and are ruined by how just generic and done to death this entire movie felt. It felt done to death. I've seen this 10,000 times. It was novel in 2012. If the lead therapist had been Micah Monroe, I would have believed it. You know? And again, it's nothing against Bacon. She's, she's probably the best part of the film. And sometimes she's the worst part of the film. So, you know, it's just like, it's just like uneven movie where you can't say I can't sit here and tell you it's absolute dog shit and I can't tell you that it, it's all these horror directors and writers out there that are on Twitter going this is the most unnerving movie in years I'm like no no it isn't no 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 not at all there's more there's more I could get into I won't because <laughs> I've been going long enough as it is um, how does it end? I mean, if you really want to know how it ends and you're like, some of the listeners are like, we don't care about spoilers. Just tell us the whole fucking plot. She goes to the home that she's still kept in the family. It looks like the house from Nightmare on Elm Street. Single story though. And she finds the ghost of her mother. who It's not really her mother. Of course, it's whatever this smiling monster creature, demon entity is. Thankfully, they don't try to explain it like Bagul, and you're like, oh, well, it's this ancient Assyrian demon that lives in cave paintings. Like, thankfully, they don't try to explain it. There's no explanation for it. It's just this thing. And she asks, like, what are you? Who are you? Why are you doing this to me? And it doesn't answer any of the questions except for why are you doing this to me? And it's like, because your mind makes it so easy. Okay, whatever that means. Because of trauma. And in the flashback with her and her mom, it's revealed that 
She didn't just witness, find her mom's dead body. She didn't just witness her mom's last dying moments. That her mom actually said, Mommy's made a mistake. Okay, took too many pills. Please call 911, get help. And she didn't. She let her mom die instead. And so that's why she's like working 80 hours a week to help the mentally ill because she has this guilt complex because of her mother. This is all revealed to us by her taking a fucking oil lamp and lighting it and walking into this whole house has been abandoned, right? But the mom's bedroom still has the bed and the mattress in the bed frame where she died. That's the thing that was left untouched. And she shines a light on the trauma. Do you get it? And to confront her past. And then, but this is a horror movie. So if you've ever seen Nightmare on Elm Street, you know. Well, she's going to do the thing that in a normal movie you would do to overcome it. Like if you overcome your fear or your trauma, then this thing's going to become disempowered and she's going to win. And just like they burned Freddy in Nightmare on Elm Street, they it, eventually the mom grows into this giant version of the mom, giant mom. And it's like something like straight out of it, right? It's like the old lady in it. It's basically it. <laughs> no pun intended. And then, and she's like, oh, you know, your mind is so delicious or whatever the fuck. And it's like, it's your mind. You can't escape your mind. And then the bacon goes, well, Rose goes, well, if I can't escape my mind, then neither can you. And sets the creature on fire and burns the house down. And we're like, oh, she's free. And then we watch her leave the house, get in the car, drive to town, go to the, de the detective's apartment. The fiance is completely out of the movie by this point. And I'm going to finish with those thoughts. And she's like, uh, basically admits, like, because of this thing that I did, all this trauma, I put walls up. Super generic monologue about, I don't let people in. That's why I pushed you away. I was afraid of how you made me feel, blah, 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 blah. And then, of course, she's not really there. She's still in the cabin. He's really the creature. The creature didn't die. Nothing's been accomplished. He finally does a, a a show up in real life, and she assumes it's the monster again, posing as him, and like it follows. And it this is the most disturbing image in the entire film. She is eventually like incapacitated. The thing rips its face off uh, as the mother. It's this giant creature, and it's like mouths within mouths, like rows of teeth within rows of teeth. I don't even know how to describe it. Weird looking. Looks like, almost like something out of Beetlejuice, but it's very CGI. And then it like starts opening her mouth and then abnormally largely starts stretching her jaw open. And the camera cuts and we're at like a side profile. It's almost like something out of like the empty man. Some of the real creepy imagery from the empty man or like the the vitch or something. Like it's 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 really disturbing. And if the whole movie had been building towards this very disturbing moment and had been as disturbing as that image, but we kind of felt it all the way leading up to this evocative image, it'd be a pretty good movie. Instead, it's like so-so. And so then it like, it's like crawling into her d distended mandible. And this thing's huge, so it's very ghastly looking. And it's like crawling inside of her. And he finally breaks in finds her she's now possessed she's got the huge smile on her face she sets herself on fire and we see her burning image in his uh, eye so he's a witness to the trauma he sees her death that traumatizes him so he's going to carry the trauma on whatever the fuck
I think that this is maybe a studio rewrite because there's plot points throughout the movie where her nephew, she has a nephew, and the nephew is being traumatized. And and every time he popped up, it was comedic, and everybody laughed. And it was supposed to be like the scarier parts of the movie. And he's he witnesses really kind of ghastly things up to and including what he what he perceives as his aunt after he's already been traumatized in a pretty funny scene. His aunt it's not supposed to be funny, by the way. His aunt like talking to herself and gesticulating, acting crazy in the car, right? And he's like watching it, and you see his eyes are so big. She should have killed herself in front of the kid. And I bet you that's how it was originally written. And they wanted, they had to sort of skirt around the fact that you can't glamorize self harm and suicide. You know, Paramount can't. Robert Eggers could. Ari Aster definitely has, right? But it's not glorifying it, but. You know, that's a, it's a plot point, right? You can't make that a plot point in a Paramount Pictures release where it's like this is all revolves around killing yourself. There was also a very obvious solution to her problem, which is this thing needs a witness. So as she committed suicide in this empty house before anybody else got there, it would have ended the curse. And I 100% thought, and I heard the, when the guy, when the guys in that crew said the same thing, well, I thought that's what she was going to do. And that's like Fallen or whatever. And then, of course, the twist of Fallen, which I won't reveal here. Um, but it's like, that, that's the obvious choice. Like, you're going to die. Like, there's no escape from this thing. So why, 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 in the context of this film, not in real life, why wouldn't you do that? That seemed to be the obvious choice. You know, pull a Denzel, poison yourself around nobody. There's nowhere for it to go. End it. Save the world, right? Sacrifice yourself, save the world. And that actually kind of thematically ties into her, like, you didn't do the right thing. You, 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 but then again, you didn't do the right thing when you were a child. That guilt carried you on. So now at the place where you didn't do the right thing, now you have a chance to save others, which has been supposedly your motivation the entire time. Again, though, then somebody reads that script and goes, this makes it seem as if we're saying suicide is the answer to all your problems. The world would be better off without you. So, that, like, you can't, you got to be careful with that. So, I think there's probably a couple different ways it was written, and none of them got past the studio. Maybe they were even shot, but because the, part of the ending feels real choppy, and the green screen effects aren't quite as good, and it just feels like we came to this kind of ending. It's the ending of St. Maud, you know, and it's like, that's not good. <laughs> you know, I've, I've seen such a better version of it. Again, A24. You have seen this movie. You've seen worse versions of it, but you've certainly seen better versions of what it does well. That's what I would say. What it does mediocrely, you've seen done mediocrely a million times. What it does well, you've seen done better. So wait for this one on streaming. Until next time, binge on.